Well, hey, we are back. It's been quite a while, but I'm delighted to welcome you to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. Now, I hope you didn't miss me as much as I miss me, uh, by which I mean I really miss doing the podcast, uh, if you know what I mean. But you know what? Enough about me, Matt Stevens. Um, this is the Derek G episode. What can I tell you about Derek? Well, he's first and foremost a Canadian and a maple leaf wearing national champion at that. Now he's just ripped up the Giro d'Italia, literally torn the race to pieces by not knowing when to not go in the breakaway. And we talk in detail about that. We also talk about the atrocious, attritional weather at this year's Giro d'Italia and how that actually kind of worked in his favor. And it's probably not for the reason that you think. We also did a hometown quiz featuring the price of donuts and things well, as they normally do, they got a little bit weird near the end where I asked him his favourite question word. Who, what, where, when, why or how. Yeah, it was a little bit strange. So, pop on an old pair of shoes or headphones and settle back into the comfort of your favourite cycling tangential podcast because this is the Derek G episode. You know it's that time again It's hard to believe that Derek G is in his first season as a World Tour pro, and at the age of 25, he's a relatively late bloomer by modern standards. Riding for Israel Premier Tech, he just placed second on four stages of the 2023 Giro d'Italia and came fourth on another two, plus he was second in the King of the Mountains, second in the points classification, and won the most aggressive rider. He's also got a bunch of medals from his track cycling career. He's an Olympian and has been a Canadian national time trial champion as well. Is there anything this man can't do? Let's find out. I believe this podcast has taken off. Um, well, a brand new episode of Matt Stevens Unplugged. We've been away for a while, taking a little break. And our first guest, who I can see because we previous podcasts were purely audio. This is our first video one, although you're probably going to be listening to this wherever you are without seeing it. So avoid the confusion. But I can see Derek G. Derek, welcome, mate. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, First up, we like to set the scene. Um, where are you in the? I know where you are in the world, but can you explain to people where exactly you are in the world? I am in Dundas, Ontario, back in Canada. Very nice, mate. Very nice. Where? Where is that? East or west side? It's kind of east, isn't it? Uh, yeah, east side of like on the on the Great Lakes. Okay, so it looks like you could be anywhere because there's no, nothing behind you. You can see I'm in my spare little podcasting room. So what can you see immediately around you? Is there anything of that's that is exciting that you want to sort of explain or describe to our listeners? Uh, I'm currently on a farm. Um, All right. Out back, I can see through the window, I can see the field, not a whole lot in it. Um, and then up closer, I can see my cat sitting, uh, sitting by the window. What's your cat called? Uh, Simba. Simba. Is that, oh, is that is that Jungle Book? It's uh, the Lion King. Lion King. Oh, flipping it. I got my wrong. He Disney came film. He came pre-named. He came pre-named. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Now, Derek, me, you've already met Niall, our producer, who's in the background making sure this all goes okay and we don't derail ourselves. But just before you came on air, we were weirdly talking about cars and if naming cars after ourselves so just a quick one just so we can get this out of the way before we can start the pod if you 
could work with any car brand. It doesn't really matter. And they said, look, Derek, you know, um, you can name the car after yourself. What would your car be called? It'd be like the Ford something or other or whatever. What do you, what do you reckon? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> that's going to take me ages because I'm going to sit here and think, oh, no, that's kind of cheesy. That, that's stupid. <laughs> um, if it was a brand, mm. I would work with the uh, Saab, which is now discontinued. But I had uh, I had a Saab for probably eight years. Don't they don't they make Saabs it's my anymore? Favorite car. Don't I don't make... think so. I think I think Saab's dead. Oh no! Because yeah. where was Saab from? Was was it, were that was it over in like was it Scandinavia or something like that? Yeah, they they were Scandinavian, and then I think they got bought by. Uh, GM, the American company, and I think they died quite a few years ago. So I'm very sorry to break this news to you just now. That's really it. Might affect the whole temp- tombra of the podcast, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the death of Saab. But uh, anyway, so what would your what would your car be? It would be the Saab <laughs> Del Boy. Uh, no, that's a bit too British. <laughs> yeah, that one's lost on me. Um. <laughs> okay, well, I tell you what. Let's get back to that bit later. Um, and yeah, let, that, and let, that's a great idea. Yeah, and let's let's not put let's not make this too awkward an introduction. But seriously, Derek, thank you very much for joining us on on Matt Stevens Unplugged. It's a pleasure. And ever since we briefly met at the Giro, and I was I had the privilege to be at the Giro um, as I have done for the last few years, and to see the way you performed, I just needed to get you on to reboot the show because you're you're an absolute star, mate. Um, but first up. How are you feeling? Have you had time to relax at all? I noticed you were 10th the other day in the Brussels Classic, so you, you didn't have much rest, but did you manage to have any time to just reflect, recuperate a little bit, and maybe think about what you've achieved? Yeah, it's been a, it's definitely been a, a strange few weeks because the week after was so busy with uh, media requests, and I still had a race on the weekend afterwards, and uh, then I went to the wind tunnel after that, so that was a bit of a, a whirlwind. And now that I'm back in Canada and everything's kind of calmed down, I've, I've had some time to reflect. And uh, yeah, I mean, there was also the the contract that was being worked out that throughout that week, so it was it was really really busy, and I, I didn't really have a lot of time to just sit back and and think about it. So yeah, I've gotten that opportunity now. And and how how does that make you feel? I mean, obviously you'll be looking to the future as cycling is one of those worst, like any sport or any pursuit where you want to get better is there's not a lot of time for dwelling on the past, but sometimes when you've worked so hard, it's, I think it's an, an important thing to do and, and not actually neglect. Yeah, for sure. And it's been a lot of thinking about, I mean, if you look at my results before the Giro and then you look at the Giro and, and even Brussels afterwards, they're not super comparable um i didn't really have any results before the giro so i think a lot of it a lot of it has been thinking okay how can i continue to perform at this level going forward and improve off of that and not find myself in the second half of the season going back to you know the the kind of level i was racing at before and that might not be up to me you know i might go back to to doing one day and and one week races and i just don't have that same level that I had, you know, maybe in week three of a Grand Tour, and and it might just be back to, to working off the point I was at before. But uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely moving on quickly from uh, from the Giro. Because you've just looking back through, 
and, and we'll dig into your past in a little while if that's okay just your the whole genesis and the the start of your cycling journey but but it is quite fascinating when you look at your last few years as well you're 25 now so you're not you're not an old guy but you're not a young guy you're kind of in that that, that kind of sweet spot um where you've still got a lot to give you've got a reasonable amount of experience but you have literally um not not exactly literally but you know um metaphorically exploded onto the scene i mean you're okay you're canadian tt champion and um you've been riding at a good level you had opportunities to ride at world tour level with the development team last year but this really is quite a significant shift isn't it so I, i'd imagine you you yourself coming to terms with that is quite problematic a nice problem to have but trying to work <laughs> it out and how you maintain that and focus is it's quite a challenge isn't it yeah and i think I mean, this is my first year pro, but at the same time, nowadays, I feel like I'm five years past what yeah. what people's first year pros are. Um, so I, I think a big part of that is that, I mean, when you're 20, you're still developing physically as an athlete at a, at a much higher rate than I think you are at 25, even if, you know, not having... I'm still adapting physically to the stimulus of doing, you know, a world tour calendar and, and all these big races, but I'm definitely, um, I've just been, I think, a, an athlete for so much longer that, that maybe the biggest challenge for me was just getting used to how these races are raced. And so that probably gave me the opportunity to, to get results kind of, quicker because it was it was maybe a less steep learning curve than guys who come in in their first year pro at, at 20 and or even straight out of junior um so it's definitely a less steep learning curve especially with with last year getting the opportunity to kind of mix continental continental level racing with with world tour level racing um but it, it is definitely yeah definitely a quick change so I mean, we'll see. We'll see what it's like moving forward. I'm on a big break now. I don't race. I mean, I do nationals, but then I don't race for quite a while. So, I think uh, I think we'll see later this summer what it's what it's like going back to racing. I mean, what do you think? I mean, clearly that capacity was always there. You can't just do those. That, that capacity was like latent. It was. It, it might not have necessarily shown itself apart from in the TT Championships and the Olympic Games on the track and stuff. But in terms of World Tour road stuff. You burst onto the scene, so that engine was there. That capacity has obviously been there for a number of years. But what do you think made the difference? Was it just the the dynamic of the team going into the Giro, and you were quite a late call up to the Giro team anyway? So was it? Do you think it's the coming together of your, your clear physiological ability, and then the opportunity to go for stages? What do you think it was? I think it was almost the the perfect storm of a bunch of things and and some of it wasn't necessarily good stuff like we lost our gc guy pots of evo yeah and so obviously that's a shame for the team but it also opened up opportunities for we basically said well we have nothing to lose now let's go for basically every stage because you know that's that's what we're here for now and so there was that along with the fact that uh, i'm a bit of a bigger guy and it rained for like two weeks tell me about it mate tell me about it (laughs) it was miserable but I mean, when you're, you know, 55 kilos, you're going to feel that a little more, you know, you're going to feel that a little more. And, and maybe it also helped me stay healthy, having a little, a uh, little extra layer here and there. But uh, I think there's a lot of, of those kind of components that all came together 
at the perfect time. And, and that's why I was able to to do that level of performance. You know, a few more things falling falling in line would have been nice to get a win. But um, it, it yeah, I think it was just the perfect storm of the weather was miserable for so long. Guys were kind of knocked down. And then I had the opportunity to go for the stages and my legs were good at that at that you know like it turns out my legs are good deep into a stage race which there's no way of knowing without doing a grand tour so yeah i just i think at the end of the day it was just really lucky yeah just to expand on that a little bit more um obviously you had the most without the win you had the most success in the team but it was also when you look at sebastian berrick and michael from frigo you guys were up the road and animating and the rest of the team as well before the, the the very nature of the race the ridiculously attritional race I think I must have we must have used that word every five minutes in commentary because it was just just ridiculous but um to going back to the kind of team plan which obviously was torn into tatters when you lost uh Pozzo Vivo how did how did you work out who's going to go for what stage and at what because you didn't your first big placing was kind of deep into the race stage eight wasn't it and then you got this ridiculous mm-hmm. run like every few days you were getting fourth or second quite literally um so at what point did did things change for you and you thought okay and now i'm going to race this differently or what what was the point that you remember that happened i think well the biggest thing was that we were all kind of motivated uh yeah. everyone was once we had a little bit of success it was like oh okay this might be the zero and we're all on our first or our second grand tour but you know, we're, we're fine. We could be up there and, and we can compete. So we were all kind of, you know, firing each other up and, and racing really, really well and really aggressively. But at the start, it was very much a, a case of, you know, the DSs would come up and say, okay, Derek, this day, you might not be hurting yet, but you have to take it easy. Um, you have to go in the group before you're ready. You know, this is a grand tour. It really catches up to you. Like you have to pick days that you take it easy. So there were days like that. And then, and then I started going in the break It started going in the break. Maybe when I'd end up in the break kind of accidentally one day, <laughs> which when I should have been I taking love, it easy. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and then, and then by the end of it, they were like, okay, you know what? We're not going to tell you to take it easy anymore. Like you're, you're clearly fine. So we're going to, we're, it would kind of be like this guy and this guy and this guy on the team today are going to go for the break. And also Derek, if you want to, you can go as well. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, okay, that works for me. <laughs> so it, it, yeah, it ended up, we, we tackled the race really aggressively because it was almost like every second day we had, or every day we had half the team going for the break. And then yeah. myself, which was <laughs> nice. Yeah. And and the first the first breakout ride would have been to Fossombrone, wouldn't it? Stage eight, where you you eventually play second, and that was actually one of the f- few days that was actually quite warm, wasn't it? It was quite hot at the end, wasn't it? It was actually quite a nice day. Now, looking back, and, and again, just to, to step back away from this, just the way that over the last couple of years, in particular, you know, that the racing dynamics have changed enormously. And you'd have seen that from last year through to this year, and and you know you dipped your toe into you know, quite high level races for a couple of years now. But the thing that astonished me about the composition of the breakaway with yourself and Ben Healy in there was just how hard you guys had to ride before it even went. Oh. I mean, it's just, I was looking at it. It was uh, awful. Yeah, and I, and I was looking, and, I, and I, it's a long time ago since I raced, but I kind of know 
how hard you have to go. And then it's like, this is like 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 15 seconds for an hour. And then it finally went. And then you're like, how the hell do you recuperate from that? But this is a new, it's not anomalous. It's just this new strange way of racing that, that basically helps. It's reshaping your fueling strategy, your recovery strategy and stuff like that. I mean, that was, that must've been ridiculous. How did you cope with the stresses and strains of basically being on on the full gas pretty much all day? Yeah, that was my first kind of high-level breakaway. I mean, I was in the break at Roubaix, but Roubaix was such a different dynamic than a Grand Tour breakaway that, I mean, you can't... I don't really count that because there's not the same nuance to that level of breakaway. The Roubaix breakaway was just kind of full gas. This one, we got a gap just over the top of a kind of a 5K climb, and and they just held us at 15 to 20 seconds, and there were four of us riding full (laughs) gas. And I was just thinking, can they hurry up and catch us? Because I had never been successful in a break. It was my first breakaway at that level, really, and, and it was kind of like, oh, well, these almost never work. Okay, I tried. I almost made the breakaway today because I was just thinking, hurry up and catch us. Like, yeah. hurry. Like, we're done here. We're done here. We've been at 15 seconds forever. Clearly, this isn't going to work. But we just kept riding as hard as we could. And uh, the really interesting thing was I went back and looked at the numbers. And the first hour and a half of that race, I normalized something like almost 400 watts. And the last hour and a half of that race, I normalized something like almost 100 or almost 400 watts. But the middle, the middle was like an easy coffee ride. Wow. Which as soon as the break went, we had a big group come across to us and it was like, boom, race is done. All these guys, I, because I I was so inexperienced, I would have just kept riding really hard if it weren't for, for, you know, the DSs and, and just kind of seeing the, how the group reacted but it was it was kind of like all the guys knew okay this break has made it because the break formation was so hard this break is going to go to the line the peloton's done all the teams are in here and we were just riding around to 200 watts or something and i I was thinking wow this is this isn't so hard but of course i was wrecked at that point but and i needed it (laughs) i needed to ride around at 200 watts but no that was a that was a bit of a shocker yeah no it's just i i just find that that whole thing fascinating you know you look at the way riders are, you know, riding, and you know that it's unsustainable. You know, and although the level is a lot higher than it was, and the depth of strength is higher than it was, just the whole level is up. You know, everybody's doing things better, uh, training, nutrition, rest, etc. Um, but still, the ferocity, and, and you could see how just how, how hard you you just know that that's not sustainable because you're just going to blow. But and that's why, like, as soon as the the break, you get the right coalescence of the break, the right numbers, the right permutation, everybody shuts down. And you've got the gap, and then the like, like I say, your DSs are reminding you that they know that too. But the danger yeah. is, and that's why it's important to have experience around you. Is that yeah, you could have just kept pressing on, and then maybe in hour five, you'd have just gone poof. <laughs> I would have, I would have ridden myself straight out of the breakaway. I would have, I would have just, yeah. I would have blown up so many times if it weren't for the DSs because I was just, you know, I was fired up. I was in the breakaway for the first time and I was just thinking, you know, this is fantastic. I have good legs and I, oh, I would have just ridden myself off the back so quickly. It's, it, it, I think one thing that I try and get across in, in commentary, especially when um, you've got riders who are who got not so much new to the game, but in particular race situations in big races for the first time is adrenaline what adrenaline does to it's it's such it's such a helpful chemical naturally producing uh, chemical but it can sometimes it can sometimes just 
these are, you've got to control these adrenaline dumps, and that's pretty hard, isn't it? Especially when you've got there were so many Canadians out at the Duro as well, weren't you? Like calling your name and stuff, and so <laughs> do you, you just want to go with it, don't you? But you've got to hold that back, and that's where the good DS is coming. Just to control your effort, keep it smooth, just hold a little bit back, and they're really important things. But just explain how you cope with that sort of thing, or are you naturally quite uh, good at that? Uh, def- definitely not. I mean, there's some days where it really really caught up to me because at the start especially with a hard start i feel like i'm i'm good on stages with a hard start but it's really easy for me to go over the limit without realizing it so stage 13 to crans montagna the one that got shortened where we started straight up some ridiculous climb yep i i felt nothing in the legs i was flying and then i got about two-thirds of the way up the climb and i went Oh no, <laughs> like this is it all, you know, you start to feel it. You start to feel it a little bit and you realize that you've been going so hard and it's going to hit you yeah. so hard and it's, it's almost too late. You have to, you have to really, um, mediate your efforts from there on. Cause you know, you're, you're really close to going in the red without having realized it you know in training you go out you do the same effort you feel it you know right away and you know exactly how hard you're going but in a race when it's starting and you see guys suffering around you and you you're starting to get a little a little excited you're like hey maybe i'm on a good day yeah and then uh and then you push it too far and yeah it's 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 definitely not something that i'm good at naturally just um probably mediating my efforts so it's good to have guys who are who know a little more oh totally that's what the roles of the like road captains and ds's are and even sometimes maybe not so much other riders from other teams in a situation like that i just let guys just burn themselves out you know they're great just we'll just sit in and yeah you know but that's part of the game that's part of the poker that's part of the beautiful tapestry that that cycling is but just to because we've been talking about the giro for a while i just want to talk about another Another stage in particular to Tlechime, you know, the, the penultimate, well, the penultimate stage of the race, apart from the TT, sorry, the day before the TT. And what that showed to me, although, again, you were, you, you were second on the day, beaten by one of the most natural climbers in the world, who, again, who'd been not riding for GC either. This is something that you, you kind of understand is that you've been holding back. But what must have been intriguing for you is to look at the types of terrain that you can be super effective on as well i mean you got in the break in roubaix every single stage that you got placing on uh, was completely and utterly different there were flatter rolling stages high high mountain stages at altitude so what about that as a takeaway for you does that does that leave you with this kind of like what what kind of rider am i where do i go from here it's almost too much information but it's uh, how do you sift through that and find out who you really are it's definitely been uh interesting to hear the different perspectives because myself i have no idea um yeah. i i wanted to figure that out this season and then the Giro kind of confused me even more yeah um, <laughs> i think it's confused everybody so, who's watching <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i mean I think I'll probably just leave that up to the team. At the end of the day, I don't really care. I yeah. like racing my bike at a high level, and I every kind of race is appealing to me at this level because they're all such big races. You know, Paris-Roubaix is obviously mythical. It's Paris-Roubaix, but on the other side of that, you know, the Giro, a queen stage at the Giro is maybe the farthest thing from Paris-Roubaix that you can get. Yeah. But it's just as cool to me. 
it's just as appealing to to want to go in that direction so i i really have no idea and honestly next next year doing the classics i might find out that i'm just not that good at them and that's that's like completely it's a completely uh, it's completely possible because i didn't really get any results i made the break in roubaix but that's not the same as getting a result and uh okay sure maybe if i had made it through Ehrenberg, then I could have gone deep, but that's all speculation. You know, it's what I want to believe would happen. <laughs> so it's possible I go next year and, you know, just get my ass kicked and realize, okay, maybe, maybe breakaway riding at Grand Tours is just kind of the niche thing that I'm good at. Um, it's, so. it's, yeah, it, it it's, such a, it's a fascinating problem to have though. I wouldn't even call it a problem. It's a, it's a fascinating <laughs> conundrum, but what I think that tempers that is this this new generation of riders, um, you know, the top level riders, your Taddy Pogacias, your Wout Van Arts, the, the riders we're talking about all the time, who actually embrace the diversity of what road racing offers up. You know, they want to go and do the Cobble Classics, or they want to go and do Flanders. Then they want they can win high mountain stages. They want to do the Ardennes Classics. They want to do week long stage races. They're good at time trialing, which you are as well. There's no really. I, I I do like I think it, I think it's good to get out there like you just said and not be afraid to lose, get out there and try. Given that you've got the oh, don't worry, I'm used to it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm definitely not afraid of that. Oh, mate, I'm, like you, 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 you're gonna you're gonna win some big bike races. That that, that, that yeah, that that will come. But I I think it's a it's a it's a nice attitude to have is to is to just get out there and and I think now with this long term contract that you have, you can. With, along with your DSs and your coaches, you can be a little bit experimental and just go there and, and like ride as if you want to win and just see what happens. I think that's, is that to think that the kind of mindset you might fall into next year or even for the rest of this season? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't see any direction that I just want to fully commit to right yeah. now and, and, and try and go in that direction. And, and also I think a lot of it is, it's it'll be interesting to see where my strengths actually are because i think climbing in the third week of a grand tour isn't super reflective of climbing say in a one day or or when everyone's fresh because i remember the whole race i was just gaining confidence being in the breakaways with you know these 60 kilo guys and they're not dropping me on climbs or they're dropping me right at the end and i'm thinking okay you know what maybe i'm a pretty good climber and then at the same time on the queen stage up paso jao Michael Hepburn, who's a bigger guy than me, he had me on the ropes he was at the top fly- of it. Michael was oh, flying that day, wasn't he? I was like, what? <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking, I was in the break looking around going, okay, I've been climbing really well. And, you know, the break formed on the flat. There's some bigger guys in here. This is, this is okay. And then all of a sudden, I'm almost getting dropped by, you know, a guy who I guess is, is kind of a similar, similar build yeah. to me. And I was thinking... Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe I'm climbing well because it's, it's week three and you know, cause right now there's two of us at the top of Paso Jao who are, you know, 75 plus kilos. So it's not, it's not necessarily, I think indicative that I'm going to be good at high mountains. Obviously that's, that's not, uh, necessarily what you would think looking at me. And that might not be the case. It might just be the third week is is a bit of a toss up with uh with who's who's still got legs yeah so i think i think picking the direction i'm going as a rider also depends on on where if i can find success 
in one days and and on shorter stage races and see where my profile leans when I'm fresh and when everyone else is fresh. Sure. So just sticking with with this season, just to wrap wrap this kind of season up, really. After your, how long are you going to spend in Canada chilling out? I mean, wh- when will roughly your next race be uh, apart from the nationals? Uh, I've got world championships. I'm going to try and step back on the track. We'll see. Yep. Um, after so much road racing, we'll see if I just tip over off the line or if I can still turn a, a team pursuit gear. But uh, I'll do some track and then head to uh, world championships. The super super world, so we'll see. I haven't decided what events kind of I'll be focused on there. It depends how track goes, um, and then back for I believe right now it's Benelux. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's quite quite a big break between now and Worlds, so yeah, looking forward to that in Canada. Yeah, you you, you kind of need that because, like you say, the the way uh, this you've been you've done a lot of racing so far this year, and it's it's massively important. The and I know that riders, generally speaking, now are are racing a lot less and, and this an understanding recuperation when you look at the intensity of the races as well I, I was speaking to Matteo Jorgensen the, the, the other the other week and he was saying that just in the last two years they've looked at how stressful the racing is and they've had to sort of recalibrate the amount that somebody can tolerate within a season and that's what, one of the reasons they cut in the race days because it's it's not you can't just take race days as race days it's the, it's the workload the calorific spend and, it, and the amount of recovery you need and that accumulates over time so a good rest is enormously important yeah for sure i mean it, it's tough for me it's tough for me to say because it's my first year at this level um it, so it's tough for me to to see i mean i can look back and see guys who raced you know a hundred and something days a year and i just can't wrap my head yeah. around how that's possible um just ridiculous numbers but I think for sure I could tell this year, I mean, by the end of the year, I think I was at 48 race days, which is a lot for nowadays looking at other uh, other pros. But at the same time, it look, yeah, I guess historically that's not, it's not a crazy amount of race days, but I, I was wrecked. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah, I, I, it must be just, how the intensity has changed because I can't I can't fathom trying to do you know twice that in a season or more well next up what I'd like to do I want to do a bit a bit of a dive about how you how you got into got into cycling back in the early days your first memories of a bike but before that um I think Niall probably knows what I'm doing I normally send him a whatsapp message but I've forgotten um because next up it's time for a hometown quiz and your hometown Uh-oh. is Ottawa. So cue the jingle, Nile. Oh, no. There might be a bit of a pause because I didn't tee it up properly. It's time for the hometown quiz. Yo, yo. What's up? You all ready? Uh-huh. Let's do it. Uh-huh. Turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Ottawa quiz. Yeah, it's time for the hometown quiz. Uh, that's the first time we've had um, the Ottawa quiz. We've done over 100 podcasts, but never had Ottawa. Uh, so, Derek, um, it, there's four questions for you. Okay, but don't stress right. because it's multiple choice, all right? Oh, I'm stressing. No, no. <laughs> Thinking this is going to end with me getting disowned by my community. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to have to sit back slightly. Do you know what? I'm getting old, mate. I've, I wrote these down last night. I did a lot, but I'm going to have to... 
it's broad daylight, but oh, that's it. I've got to shine my <laughs> phone torch on the questions. Okay. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Right. Okay. And my writing is atrocious as well. But so four questions, all multiple choice. You just got to choose the right answer. Uh, and then there's a bonus question at the end as well. So, um, so phones down, no open tabs on your laptop, if that's good. So hands free. Good lad. I wasn't accusing you of anything, but just, just so we can keep this. Uh... Okay. So question number one. Okay. Um, the city, the city name of Ottawa was chosen way back in 1855, and it was in reference to the uh, Ottawa River, um, which itself is derived from the um, Algo, Algonquin word of Algonquin, yeah. Algonquin which is a, a, a language spoken at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so from the Algonquin word for Adawe. Okay. So my question to you: What does the word Adawe actually mean? And that was where the word for the Ottawa River was derived, basically. So um, the Ottawa River um, derives from the the can you Al Algonquin, Algonquin. word for Adawe? Yeah. So what does Adawe actually mean? So one of four answers. Okay. Is it A to trade? B to prosper? C to flourish? Or D to unite? What does Adawi mean in the old language? Oh. Yeah. I'm gonna lock in <laughs> to trade. Is that your final answer? No. Let's oh, change it. Oh no, 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 no. Prosper. I was gonna say I, I, No, don't don't change it. <laughs> don't change it, don't change it. Locked in. It's the correct answer. Well done. Flip. You cover two bases at once. That's how you, I'm cheating here. Yeah, no, no, no. That's good. I, I, I should give you less visual clues there. Anybody who's just... Well, I was thinking... I was thinking flourish, prosper. They're pretty similar. Yeah. So one of them's probably right. Yeah, yeah. So it is here. actually to trade to 100% so far, uh, Derek. So well done. Uh, moving on to question number two. This is a stats type of question. Okay. Right. As of the 31st of December, 2015... How many kilometers of cycling facilities, um, including multi-use pathways, cycle tracks, on-road bicycle lanes, and paved shoulders were there in the city of Ottawa? Okay, so as of 31st of December 2015, how many kilometers of cycling facilities, including all the ones, were are there in Ottawa? Was it A, 700 kilometers, B, 800 kilometers, C, 900 kilometers, or D, 1,000 kilometers. Um, and just off the back of that, 2.5% of all the citizens in Ottawa use cycling as a transport to get to work or education, which is the highest in the whole of Canada. So it's... Oh, uh, not bad. Yeah, so it's, it's a proper cycling city uh, when it comes to Canada. Did you say, did you say 2.5%? 2.5% of all of citizens have said oh, that they... Okay, maybe a... Yeah. Maybe a little sad. Yes, again, <laughs> it's the highest in Canada. Yeah, I mean that there. I don't know what London or New York or anywhere is, but uh, but there you go. Again, it's a cold place. I mean, a lot of the time, I guess, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, cold. So yeah, seven hundred k's, eight hundred k's, nine hundred k's, or a thousand kilometers of cycling facilities. I'm gonna believe. I'm gonna believe in my city, and I'm gonna go with a thousand. I'm afraid it's the wrong answer. It's it's nine hundred. <laughs> 900 pretty close pretty close but pretty it's close. close it's close enough and also you've still got 50% so don't worry just just relax right okay right okay <laughs> question 3 on which road 
is Ottawa's main train station. Okay, on which road? Okay, is it A, Riverside Drive, B, Industrial Avenue, C, Tremblay Road, or D, Belfast Road? So I've never taken the train in Ottawa. Uh, so this is tough. Yeah. Also, I don't spend a lot of time in Ottawa proper. That's, that's okay. I'm, that's okay. I'm well, tell you what I'm going to tell you what say, I'm going to do, Derek. I'm going to. Oh, oh, do you want oh. to? It, it's a little bit like who wants to be a millionaire, but there's no cash prize in yep. this. So yeah, I'm going to take What's away. 50-50? Oh, it's fifty-fifty. Let's do the fifty-fifty. <laughs> uh, Nala, we cool. We're doing a fifty-fifty, mate. I've got confirmation. We are fine. We're absolutely fine to do that. So I'm going to take away a Riverside Drive and B Industrial Avenue. Ooh. So it's between Tremblay Those are Road. Those my two guesses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's between <laughs> Tremblay Road and Belfast Road. And they're quite close together, these roads, by the way. So Tremblay mm. or Belfast. Okay, let's go with uh, let's go with Tremblay. It's correct. Well done. Nice. <laughs> nice one, mate. Nice one. Right. Um, this is quite possibly my favourite question. Um, I did a deep dive, an, an hour and a half of research last night for this question. Well, not just on this question. Oh, my goodness. Okay, here we go. Um, actually, I just sent myself. Well, what we'll do as well, I'm just going to fire up another tab because um, we've got some really interesting facts about this. So let me just open that up for afterwards. Let's get back to the pod. Right, okay. Question four. Let me just make sure you, you're still. Can you still hear me, mate? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, last for there a you second. There you go, you're it's back. Yep, yeah, you're back. You just froze briefly. No worries. Okay. How many Tim Hortons restaurants are there in Ottawa? Okay, and for anybody listening in, um, Tim Hortons is a Canadian chain for signature premium brand coffee, plus light fare, pastries, and breakfast sandwiches. Um, and interestingly, there's one in my hometown of Derby. We have a Tim Hortons, mate, here in the north of England. Crazy. That's probably so, one of very few outside of Canada. There's not uh, there's not that many, but it's we we went the other week and it was really nice. We had some of the tiny little bite the t- donut bites. You know the ones Timbits. Timbits. Yeah, Timbits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many Tim Hortons are there in Ottawa? Is it A fifty eight, B sixty two, C sixty nine, or D seventy three? Okay, I'm going to say um, there are sixty two Tim Hortons. It's incorrect. It's is 69. Ah. There's 69 ah. Tim Hortons. Right. Okay. You can pull this back. It's a very specific question. Um, for a bonus point, which I'm going to give you two points, how much within 50 cents um, do Tim Hortons charge for a pack of six assorted donuts? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to look. I'm going to look like. Uh... What do you reckon? <sighs> Obviously in, obviously in Canadian dollars. Um, I'm going to lose my Nash, my uh, I'm going to lose my passport here. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to give I'm going to float this out within a dollar. Okay, if you can get the right okay, price within right, a dollar. Right. So, pack of six assorted donuts. Um, what's it going to cost you? And I checked the price last night. <laughs> I'm going to say seven dollars. That's correct. It's seven twenty nine, mate. That's a crushing nice. answer, mate. <laughs> well done. Oh, right, you know, of course. <laughs> I, I was actually 
one stage of UAE tour, I had to do a double take because I rode along and we're in the middle of the UAE and there was a Timmy's on the side of the road. Flipping I was heck. like, this is ridiculous. That, that, yeah, yeah. Obviously it's a, I do like, the first time I came across them was in a race in Canada called Trans Canada uh, back in 1999. Steve Bauer put the event on. Um, on a road, it me and Charlie Charlie Wigalius rode it for Mapai, and I was riding it for a, a British team. And um, I broke my collarbone on day one. But yeah, I spent a lot Oof. of time in Tim Hortons because I turned out I was like the one-armed swanier for the week, uh, getting everybody coffee. We always went to Tim's. Um, and this is just a, a fact. It's, a, it's a, I'm not going to ask you the question, but there are three thousand five hundred and seventy-nine Tim Hortons in Canada, mate. Not bad. That's that's a lot of stats. I found a website that just gives stats for Tim Hortons restaurants, and you can download a, an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> there are 1,807 in Ontario, and basically um, that means with a population of 14.45 million, uh, it means there's per store, there's 8,000 people in the population per store of Tim Hortons in your home county, mate. There you go. That's, hey, that's the amount of research. Mess, we don't mess around with our donuts, apparently. There you go, mate. So you actually got, with the one question right, the two bonus points, that's 75%. Well done, Derek. Well done, thank mate. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Round of applause from our live studio audience that we have here. Um, right then, yeah, thanks for participating in that, mate. It's, um, yeah, again, a varied um, style of questions there. But what I want to do now, is, if it's okay with you, mate, is just go back in time a little bit to the, your first your first memories of riding a bike as a kid. Do you, can you remember the first time you rode a bike? The first time I rode a bike? Nope. I can remember my first bike race, but I cannot remember the first time I rode a bike. First race uh, then, what, 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 how did that go? It was uh, just a kid's race. Um, I mean, obviously it was a kid's race, but it was just, uh, I don't know, I'm sure I took it way, way, way too seriously. Um, I probably, I don't know if you've seen the picture online, there's a picture online of a kid's race and then one kid is on a full race setup, he's got like an aero helmet on and everything, that's probably what I was like. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, he's got like a, a small bike but like deep section wheels in and all sorts, yeah. hasn't he? And there's other kids on like little mountain bikes with all their helmets wonky and he, yeah, it's yeah. okay. So I, so I take it then from what you're saying that, because I bumped into your dad, didn't I, in Rome and your mum. Yeah. And your girlfriend as well. I bumped into those guys in Rome, and and your dad was lovely actually. Um, but clearly, there's cycling's been in the family for for a while. And it, was it was it your dad who got you into riding in the first instance? Yeah, he just raced masters in in Canada, and uh, I mean, he took it pretty seriously. But I think all masters racers take it pretty seriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, he trained more than me until probably I was 18 or 19 years old. He, wow. he was really, uh, and, and we used to go to races together. He'd race, you know, 40 plus, 50 plus, side race, whatever it was, under 15, under 17, under 19. And uh, yeah, it was just awesome. We'd go for the weekend, drive down, because everything in Canada is so far, uh, so spread out. You know, you'd have to drive six hours to the nearest race, and then we'd race, drive home, and uh Oh, it was super fun. We had, Ottawa has a local uh, cycle cross series. I started in when I was nine or 10, you know, 10 one hour races. And, uh, oh, that destroyed me. I'd usually have to miss a day of school. I was so wrecked. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> we had local uh, 15K time trials and just, I mean, they, we have a database of it. It's got, I've probably done 50 of them and it's wow. got all my times from, you know, 2009 or something like that or 2007. So, no, it was a really cool place to, to start riding a bike, Ottawa. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of, the, the competition is actually pretty uh, pretty tough in this city, so lots of people to race all the way up. Fair enough, fair So at what point then did you, you're traveling to these races with your dad, clearly having fun, and that's fundamentally, that's one of the most important things, isn't it? Because I remember as a, as a young lad running first and then, then riding, but my budding memory is either really hurting or just and having fun weirdly at the same time, just taking chunks out of yeah. each other. You know, going to the, the we had 16k time trials, 10 mile time trials in the UK. There was a, a big time trial scene here, so we'd like do two hours in the morning. I'd I had a little part time job, finish that at 10 o'clock in the morning, then do a two hour ride, go to bed for an hour, then go and do <laughs> just stuff like that. But I was just training, but, yeah. but fundamentally it was just great fun. And uh, but at what my question to you is. At what point did you think, ah, this is something I wouldn't mind pursuing this as a profession? At what point did it go beyond being just something you did and, and loved uh, to being a, profession, a potential professional? How did this happen? It, it never, I think it never wasn't. Uh, right. When I was six, I was watching the tour. Oh, right. Know, okay. I mean, I, I wanted to be a pro so badly right so so badly i mean i had posters on my wall i you know i would watch i would watch these stages and i i would just you know picture myself there and i think throughout kind of the build there's a bunch of times you just don't think you're gonna make it um i mean it was almost a constant thing i think at the start i was convinced i was gonna be a pro and then you know you get kind of deeper into the sport and you realize oh there there's no way i'm ever going pro and then you know, you get a couple more opportunities and, and you don't really believe and obviously you want to go pro so badly and everything kind of has to has to line up. Um, so, yeah, even even when I was a kid, I think uh, the whole time I was thinking that that I wanted to, to go professional. Yeah, because you were, again, just looking back, because obviously pro cycling stats is our go to place for looking at what people did. Yeah. But back to like 2014, you, you were riding junior worlds. Like, so you. You were good, pretty young, so it's always been a constant. And then ultimately, you were picked up by the the development team, the uh, Israel Premier Tech development team, relatively late, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they honestly were just kind of. Uh, <clears throat> I guess it was almost like a like a pity uh, a pity spot what? on the team what because in the sense of in the sense of I was um, in contact with the. The performance manager of the team okay and after track and and he was looking at my my numbers and he was saying hey you, you have really good numbers but you have no race experience you have no results you've been doing track for for five years and almost exclusively track so you know find it find a team and and just you know like just find a lower level team and and try and get some results and and you know we'll try and get you on the world tour team if if you can show that hey you know you can actually perform on the road and so I said, okay, great. Started, I did just, this was 2021. All I did was nationals. I did the TT and the road race. And, yeah. and he reached out to me afterwards and he goes, so have you found a team? And I was like, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. And wow. he goes, okay, well, we'll, we'll get you a spot on our, 
U23 team and I was not a U23 at this point so it was more of a it was more of a like here's here's an opportunity to to race in Europe um you know, we'll make an exception to the to the U23 thing. So I'm really grateful for them for doing that. And yeah, because that's, that's a big deal, Derek, isn't it? I mean, when you think yeah. about that, I mean, there's a there's not that many... When an under-23 team is an under-23 team, that's generally the rule. But there's I've noticed there's one or two riders that have gone back down and gone back up again and have been not exactly rescued, but there's clearly someone who believes in your capacity and, like, has given you, like, tr- not trusted you, but sensed a potential. So that was a... That's an enormously pivotal point in your career, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And just the fact that because I I had no I had no team and I was planning on just doing another cycle of track because that was kind of my only option. I didn't really want to do another cycle of track, but I mean, that that was, I guess, all all I had. And, And no, he he really believed in me and I think he has the whole time. Um especially when he when he I guess saw my numbers and said okay there's potential there like let's see if he can actually do something with these or whether you know um because I being a North American and going to Europe you are often just so out of your league with the way things are raced yeah I mean in North America the smallest road you know it's the biggest road in Europe there yeah, and yeah. the the field sizes are smaller and okay maybe at the top uh, you know the at let's say the 2.2 level the actual physiological capacity of the winners is very similar you know the guys in north america they're just as strong but there's so many dynamics that exist in european racing that just don't exist in north american racing so it's a massive gamble when you bring someone from north america because it's kind of a 50 50 of whether they can race or not and it took me time too i was way out of my league when i when i first went to europe just um trying to understand how to how to be in position at the right time and stuff like that because it's not it's just not a thing in north america yeah it's um i think having again this is going back a long time but there's a couple of americans on the my first amateur team in france and they're the same kind of thing well there's there's multiple factors there's firstly you're a long long way from home living in france and being in the uk you're not not that far away from home really you want to get back on in in a day you can but um but then racing abroad for the very first time especially the, the the way that the peloton's moving now the contemporary modern world tour peloton is 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 very different than the world tour peloton five or ten years ago there's there's so much heightened stress and also everybody is fundamentally going faster so all these things are happening in in even quicker than they were before so there's it there's a lot to did, did you find did you find that quite hard or did you embrace that kind of chaos and and did you find that you adapted quickly or did it frustrate you? Because clearly the way you've been riding this year, um, it's obviously you've, you've risen to the top, but how easy a process was that for you? I think, uh, I mean, it, it was nice because obviously cycling, you hear pre-COVID, post-COVID, they're different yeah. Pelotons, just Absolutely. the way things are raced and, and the level. But luckily because I came in post-COVID, it was kind of, it was just a blank slate for me. I didn't have that comparison. So it was like, this is what the racing at this level is like. This is how it's raced. And and I was just learning it straight from from scratch. That being said, I'm, I have so much to learn. I have yeah. blown so many races this year being out of position. And that that's the hardest thing for me is just, I mean, the Giro was nice because it's, it's, 
it's more relaxed when you're racing for 21 days. You know, not everyone. The, the road's not, the peloton's not square across the road yeah. the whole time. Um, and also, when you're in a Grand Tour peloton, there's a lot more, you know, kind of... 60 kg guys who you know, you can fight a it's a it's easier to fight a wheel than you know if you're racing e3 and everyone there is you know yeah it's just it's a lot more, there's a more lot more big engines in there basically yeah, exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly more experienced and and you're looking at a guy beside you and you're thinking i probably am not going to win the fight against this guy for the wheel so there's definitely a lot of learning i still have to do in terms of that um so I, I do definitely still frustrate myself sometimes if I have good legs and I end up just in a group that that I'm there because I really messed up when I should be in position. Um, and, and it does get frustrating sometimes when you hear in the pre-race meeting, you know, this is the spot that you have to be in position. This is the spot that you have to be in position. And then it obviously blows, the race blows up right there and you're out of position and then, you know, you you go oh why weren't you in position it's like well well everyone was trying to be <laughs> that, that's you know the, yeah, like, there's only knows. so much space <laughs> that's yeah. the thing that that is every team meeting everybody has their own kind of plan but ultimately keep key like changing wind direction narrowing of a road up to the bottom of the climb or whatever you know that everybody's got that same information um and they're going to be doing the same thing and that's why they, it's so chaotic and i'd imagine super stressful as well everybody's trying to do the same thing and there is only an X amount of road and that's when riders start to take risks as well. So it's kind of, it's, yeah, they're, they're kind of manageable risk, but some people's appetite for risk is slightly higher than others. And, you know, and then, <laughs> and then you've got technical ability as well, you know, uh, how many teammates has somebody got to drop them into place? It's it's pretty, it's pretty scary stuff sometimes, isn't it? When you're fighting for one, when, when suddenly the road narrows to this certain point, you know you've got to be there. It's kind of, it's, it's nerve wracking as well, isn't it? For sure, and and I think maybe sometimes I enjoy using my brakes more than I should, or more than other other guys do. Um, and then there's also guys. I mean, I'm on a team with. There's a couple guys who are just wizards. Yeah, you know, like Simon Clark yeah, or yeah. Sepp Van Mark. These guys, these guys have never been out of position a day in their lives. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like. It's like you'll be riding around next to them and you'll be like, okay, I'm just going to follow him because, you know, the crucial point's up here. And then, you know, you reach down and grab your bottle and he's 50 spots ahead of you. And you're thinking, oh, well, you know, that's that's the kind of thing I guess I have to learn to do. But um, no, it's 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 for sure there's so much nuance to it that that is hard to describe. Like, I can't just ask and say, hey, how do you like what are some tips for, you know, being there? It's. It's just kind of this feeling they have, I guess. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot still still to learn, and yeah, there there are some risks, but I think there is a way to do it pretty safely. I don't know that way yet, but it's just it <laughs> but, it, uh, it, it will yeah. come, and it it's just a matter of doing more and more world tour races, and just racing and racing and racing and getting and just building your confidence up. And that it's like when you first ride a bike or when you first ride in a peloton or first ride on somebody's wheel as a kid, you're like, what the? And then you'll, yeah. you can't ride this close, but it just becomes something innate, doesn't it? And like you said, there are little bits that you can, but ultimately it's just being in those situations and, and, and getting deconditioned to the stress and just, under, and then just feeling it. And it just, but it isn't something that you can just, press a button it, it's it's time isn't it and and Clarkie and, and Sepp are riders have been they've been racing 
for another t- decade longer than you have, you know? So yeah. do you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're brilliant yeah. riders, accomplished riders, but it, it will happen, but it, it will just take a little bit of time. But there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Mate. Now, we've, we're nearly an hour into this pod. It's been absolutely brilliant chatting. And one thing I wanted to talk about, it's slightly off tangent, is ornithology, just briefly. Um, now, I, I, I was doing a little bit of a deep dive, um, and you're, you're a big twitcher, aren't you, mate? You're, you're into your bird watching. Where, where, how did that come about? Did you say a twitcher? Yeah. So in the in is the, that a so in the UK? That a, sorry, that's a, a, a in the UK <laughs> bird watchers. It's a it's a colloquialism. It's just a slang, and it's quite a nice one for twitchers. So so we had we had a guy. Um, oh, what was he called? Oh bloody hell! His name will come to me. Uh, anyway, his name he used to come on our club runs. This is in the nineteen eighties, and he was a bird watcher. He was a twitcher. John Dowling, his name was, really good British rider. And in the 80s, he had a pager he's having in his back pocket. So he'd be on a club run with us. And then suddenly he'd be like, I've got to go. And he'd I'd be like, what? So he would get paged by the National Association of Bird Watchers when there was a rare bird. So he would break off a training ride on the weekend, get in his car and drive to like four hours to Scotland or something to just see this particular sort of bird. And on rides, he'd have a little notebook and he would, and quite often he'd pull over and 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 write write it down. Honestly, but he loved it. But are you that? Are you kind of that level? <laughs> You've never stopped in a I, race, I take it. I, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not. And that's the thing about about bird watching is, I picked it up because I thought, oh, here's a low energy, you know, pastime that I can do when I'm not riding my bike. And then the more I got into it, the more I realized. This isn't this isn't a, like a passive thing for most people. They are they're, the the intensity level that some of these birders have is so unbelievable. If I took it to that level, it would defeat the whole purpose of me being a yeah. birder, which was that I want like a just something I can relax doing, something you know that that isn't that I can do while I'm recovering between training and and then you know you'll see. It almost feels like this club that I'm not quite a part of. Um, I, I would be on a ride sometimes and I'd see this massive group of people with cameras. And uh, and I'd stop. I'd be like, oh, what's what's going on? Is there something? And they're like, oh, there's a, you know, I don't know, red-breasted something, something. And uh, I'm like, oh, nice. That's a cool bird, you know? And then I'd ride on. And then I'm just thinking there's this is like a... Why didn't I get the memo? You know, where are these guys getting all their info? And they're, um, no, it's, it's, there's definitely levels to it that I haven't reached. So, yeah. um, I heard stories about Ben King, for instance, who, uh, he was a really big birder and, uh, he'd go for a recovery ride. Someone was telling me, he'd go for a recovery ride. That was an hour. He'd come back like five hours later because he had stopped and just well, he's, was taking pictures. Yeah, well, he's birds. taken that a step further. He's got an Instagram yeah. account of all like wildlife photography, primarily birds, isn't it? It's amazing. Which I, I follow it's him amazing. as well. He's like, yeah. he's, he's a lovely guy, <laughs> great rider. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So do you see, um, is that something that you're just kind of nurturing at the moment and just seeing sound of kind of where it goes? Because as you say, you you know, you, you can't be pulling off in E3 because you can, you've <laughs> seen a lesser spotted wader in some canal, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, something like that. Can you? <laughs> I think, I think, Maybe maybe when I'm done with uh, with cycling, I'll I'll up my game. I'll uh, you know buy a nice camera and 
go on, you know, these massive hikes to the top of a mountain to see, you know, some specific vulture. But for now, for now, I'm going to keep it, uh, keep it chill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you don't want to be like John. He was properly on it, but he would get stressed. So he would like stop tri- and he'd have it work. And he had like this agreement with the people at work that he could take a certain amount of hours off and go as long as he kind of paid oh, the time hilarious. back. He was like, yeah, but he had this little notepad. He had his British book of birds that used to tick off pre-digital age. It was all analog. It was beautiful, actually. Thinking back, I'm, I'm kind of slightly envious. And we also had a guy who used to collect leaves and different grasses and flowers and press them in a little book in his back pocket and read poetry while we're at the cafe. We had a pretty intense scene going on back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, he, he, was, he, was a cool, he was a cool guy. But, uh, mate, we are, we're kind of slowly running out of time. There's one more... Actually, I've got a lot of questions that I haven't asked you because it's just been a lovely kind of rambling, rambling chat. But I do have, there's another quiz. It's not even a quiz. I want you to answer the next five questions with one word, okay? And I believe right. that Niall, and I'm just buying him a little bit of time so he can like get the jingle ready. Um, <laughs> Niall, give us a ding if you're ready with the one word. the one word answer quiz so we'll wrap things up with the one word answer quiz so are you ready so it's, it's kind of rap, rapid fire but you can pause and think about it but all i need is a okay. one word answer okay yep right okay um the last movie you saw at, at a movie theater it, it can be two words if it's a two-word title Movie theater, yeah. Madagascar. Madagascar, in, right? That's that's quite in like, like two thousand eight, maybe. I don't. Know. Is that the last time you went to a movie theater? Yeah. Lots of bike riding, lots of bird watching in between. Okay, um, this is quite controversial. This question: messiest roommate at Israel Premier Tech. And you can just give me. You can give me their first and second name, or just their surname. Uh Ido Goldstein. Okay. He was my, my roommate last year and uh, on the Conti team. I've avoided current I've I've avoided current uh okay, current so teammates. Probably, probably a good so idea, as, mate. Probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Be, we'll, we'll, we'll move um, on. But neutral. Mr. Goldstein was the messiest roommate. We don't need to dwell anymore on that. Question three. In one word, sum up your Juro. One word. Difficult. Difficult. Okay. That's that's a pretty decent word. Um, okay. It could be two words because sometimes these things are. You can only have one pizza topping for the rest of your life. What is it? Prosciutto. Oh, okay. And you got it in one word as well. Good, good, good form, mate. Did you have any prosciutto pizza at the Jura? I did. Good lad. Delicious. With a little bit um, of rocket on there as well. Do, do you like how the first two I had just explanations? I was pretty bad at that one word. Uh, <laughs> that it's one, fine. That there's one a, word quiz. As long as there's a pause and then an explanation, of it, it's absolutely yeah. fine. So the answer itself <laughs> it can be elaborated on. That's absolutely fine. But prosciutto, yeah, I do like a nice prosciutto uh, pizza. Okay, you've got a choice of five words here. Uh, basically, we couldn't think of question five, and I'd written a fifth question down. But anyway, choose one of these. What, when, why, who, or how? Why? There you go. So you've finished with an answer that is a question. Um, And I'm going to say thanks very much indeed.
Derek G, it's been a, a cracking pod, mate. <laughs> it was really, really lovely doing a bit of a deep dive into what you're all about. And also, in all seriousness, I want to wish you all the very best for the future as well. Um, you, you're going to be fine. Uh, and with this long-term deal with Israel Premier Tech, I think there's only you and one other. I think it's only, only you and Juan Ayuso with the longest-term contracts in the World Tour till 2028. So, I mean, actually, one word on that, because it's the team that's given you this opportunity. You've repaid them with a magnificent duro and you've shown us this remarkable potential. Uh, you must be super excited though, heading in, into the next few years with a team that you know you're happy and respected and you're going to be given a chance to express yourself. No, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm over the moon with it. I mean, they've been, they've shown me huge amounts of confidence, probably a lot more confidence than I had in myself going into the, into the season, um, just with the calendar that they've given me and, and obviously the opportunity to race the Giro and then, yeah, when they, they were keen for a long-term deal and and I was obviously keen for a long-term deal because I think job security is kind of rare in in this sport especially um so yeah I I, I couldn't be happier I'm, I'm really looking forward to to seeing it also gives me time to kind of explore different avenues as a rider so yeah I think it's uh uh, I'm pretty excited for the next couple of years. Yeah, I am too, mate. And uh, no doubt we'll bump into each other on the road in the future, mate. But enjoy the rest of your break in Canada. Good luck at the Nationals. Want to see you in the in the old Maple Leaf again. Um, but until uh, the next time, mate, you take care of yourself. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Well, that was awesome. What a way to come back with Matt Stevens Unplugged. I had so much fun with this pod. A big thanks to Derek for taking the time to chat with me today and I hope he enjoys his time off back home and comes back to pick up where he left off, entertaining us at the very sharp end of a bike race. This podcast was produced by Niall Gaffney on behalf of Hot Chili. Thanks to Perry Apgwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. And if you're in Canada, why not recommend it to the customers of your local Tim Hortons? whichever one of the 3,520 it might be. And finally, a massive thanks again to Derek for joining us on the podcast today. Cheers all, stay safe, and goodbye. I'll see you soon.